0: If life is a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Today we encore my conversation with journalist Anna Marie Cox. It concludes with a homily about how our beliefs can evolve over time. I know that mine have. If you've heard Anna's episode before, I think you'll find her harrowing yet ultimately inspiring story of recovery worth a second listen. But if today's program is new to you, please be warned. It includes a description of attempted suicide, which may be uncomfortable for some of you to hear, though I think that challenging content is one of the reasons you are following or today trying out, ye gods. You know, we all can help prevent suicide. If you or a loved one need help, please see our episode notes for where to find free and confidential, emotional support from the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline, or in the United States, Just dial 988. On next week's episode, I'll talk with the man whom I consider to be the supreme translator of spiritual works into the English language, my friend, the author, Stephen Mitchell. But now, please enjoy Anna Marie Cox.
1: I would say that one of the things that credited out is also as an active alcoholic was that I was just, um, I hated myself and self-loathing with a lack of thinking about God, because I do think that you do crowd out God when you are in the depths of of self-pity, self-loathing, despair. There's not a lot of room for any kind of higher power in your life.
0: Welcome to another episode of Ye Gods. I'm your host, Scott Carter, and my guest today is Anna Marie Cox, a political columnist and culture critic, ...whose coherent writing has appeared in a bewildering and very impressive variety of outlets. Time Magazine, GQ, The Guardian, The New Republic, Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, and Esquire. She's also a prolific podcast host, and you likely know her from With Friends Like These from Crooked Media. She currently writes the sober questioning column at The Cut at New York Magazine... ...and has been very open about her own struggles with addiction and how her faith has played a role in her recovery. A few short years ago, shortly after disclosing her Christian faith publicly, she wrote an article in the Daily Beast with the title, Thank God I Was Wrong. But as she writes, she wasn't wavering in her Christian faith, nor was she wrong that she might be criticized. What she was wrong about was the warmth and generosity she received that far outweighed criticism and negativity. She wrote that, quote, she received positive support from the right and the left, from believers and non-believers, dog people and cat people. Hannah Marie Cox, welcome to Ye Gods.
1: It's good to be here.
0: We used to see each other regularly when I was producing Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO, and you were always a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for doing this. It is a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to begin by asking, where were you born and grew up? And then was there faith in your household when you were being raised?
1: I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, because my dad was teaching at the University of Puerto Rico. He went from there to UT, which is where he was for most of my childhood, which is why I'm from Austin. My parents were not religious. My dad is a devout atheist. He's not a Bill Maher style atheist, an evangelical atheist. He just doesn't believe in God. He's a mathematician. When I was in my own questing phase as a teen, I remember asking him, why don't you believe in God? And his answer was, because he doesn't exist. And it was just very, that's a very mathematical answer.
0: <laughs> and what about your mom?
1: Because my mom was a refugee from Southern Baptist Church and grew up in a small town in Texas and experienced, you know, the kind of holy roller, very strict kind of Christian faith that can leave a bad taste in the mouth of a young woman, especially a young woman determined to be the first in her family to go to college and have a career. And She was very much not Christian, but she always was a seeker, I would say.
0: And what what form did that seeking take?
1: She went through New Age kind of phases, crystals, auras, that kind of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she did enjoy the Unitarian Church. I have many Unitarian friends, but I do sometimes describe the Unitarian Church as agnostics without a backbone. Because you can go so far into not believing as a Unitarian, right? Like, it doesn't really require anything. There's some there's some older traditions that are a little more Christian. But the Unitarian Church we went to here in Austin was pretty hippy-dippy.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've checked out Unitarian churches, and very rarely in the services that I went to or the meetings that I went to were there references to Jesus or the Bible, and but there was a tremendous accent on activism, yeah. what one could be doing, signing petitions, organizing protests. So I've always felt that there was something uh, very commendable about channeling energy in a positive way but i do miss a component of acknowledging a spiritual source. So did you ever for instance at easter or christmas were you ever did you ever express to your parents that might we go to church or was that something that you had curiosity about as a child?
1: I remember asking and being taken to easter service one year because i wanted to wear a pretty dress. But other than that, I just have a handful of memories of it. I had many surgeries as a child to correct a um, large um, birthmark that was considered precancerous. So I had several different operations from like five to nine to remove it. And I only mention that because I spent summers in bed, like three summers basically in bed. And hence my love of reading. I mean, I probably would have loved to read anyway, but it was really like it was really an escape and I really loved it. And that background is to point out that the C.S. Lewis books came into my life pretty early and came into my life at a time when I was hungry for really falling into a world, like being inside this other like imagined place. And of course, the Narnia books are Christian allegories, which I didn't realize at first. But when I did, or when I found that out, I was like, oh, well, Christianity seems pretty cool if it's what it's like portrayed here, which (laughs) C.S. Lewis did have an interpretation of Christianity that I like, but of course it's not like standard. And then when I was a sophomore, junior in high school, I moved from Texas to Nebraska and one of the cool student groups was Young Life. And I liked going to Young Life because we sang. I thought that was, I liked singing folk songs.
0: And what was the, and was Young Life- Christian Fellowship. But was it affiliated with a specific denomination?
1: Evangelical church.
0: And how did you get going there? Was it because of other friends in school?
1: Yeah, the popular kids did it. And as I said, I'm actually a pretty terrible singer, but I love singing and I love singing folk songs especially. And you know, like getting to belt out Southern cross, like in somebody's basement after school, was my idea of a good time. I do feel like I got singled out at some point as like someone to recruit for lack of a better term. like Cause I was really curious. I was totally up for talking about Jesus and asking questions about Christianity. But then two things happened. One is we went on a ski trip and, it was really fun, but they did a really heavy push, and there was an altar call. And I saw some kids getting up to cater their life to Jesus. And they were some of them were real dicks, like some popular kids who I knew were bullies and snobs. And I guess it's a lack of generosity on my part, but part of me was like, I don't think this is for real for them.
0: And when you say recruit, what were they recruiting you toward?
1: to accept jesus as my lord and savior you know become born again say the words
0: say the words yeah
1: and so the ski trip was one thing because it was like i got had this like real flash of cynicism which may or may not have been fair but it's what i felt at the time oh this is for show that was what i thought It's like oh these popular kids are doing this not because they really feel the call of jesus in their heart i don't think <laughs> and it was born out by the way those kids did wind up just being the same people and a lot of adolescents are dicks. And then the other thing that happened was one of the le- youth leaders just told me that I had to get off the fence. Like I was going to go to hell if I didn't accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I remember I asked her, can I do this anytime? And she was like, yeah, you can do it anytime. time. And I was like, so I could do it like right before I die. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, then. Got an out. <laughs>
0: Yeah. What's the journey to get you from there to where you are now?
1: I was really fascinated by evangelical culture, but I didn't feel like it was the only... I knew it wasn't the only way.
0: Yeah. And I've had people in my life, especially early on, who were either strongly evangelical, very committed in some way, and part of me envied Mm -hmm. the certainty with which they lived their lives. On the other hand, I knew that they could not transfer that certainty to me even if i liked them and i had envied this aspect of them i couldn't get it
1: i envied the faith i didn't really but it, it wasn't that i believed that they believed in god more than me it's just that i had such a fuzzy idea of like higher power i guess i've come to call it as shorthand like i thought something's out there But I didn't know for sure what, who, why, didn't know if if that thing cared about me. There were many other things that I thought were more interesting to think about.
0: And so did these other things then crowd out this field of inquiry?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was obsessed with politics and evangelical Christians were part of that. And I was curious about their behavior how it matched up with the words of the Bible. I would say that one of the things that credited out is also as an active alcoholic was that I was just, um, I hated myself. And self-loathing with a lack of thinking about God, because I do think that you do crowd out God when you are in the depths of, of self-pity, self-loathing, despair. There's not a lot of room for any kind of higher power in your life. And so I think that was happening for me. And as far as identifying as an alcoholic, I mean, I knew I had a problem for a few years before I hit bottom. Like, I knew I couldn't stop drinking. I knew my behavior wasn't normal. I knew I loved drinking. It wasn't until I went to rehab that I realized that other people, <laughs> one of the reasons that normal people can stop drinking is that actually literally alcoholism and chemicals affect the brain of a normal person differently than the effect brain of an alcoholic. Like
2: mm-hmm.
1: alcoholics and addicts experience mind-altering chemicals a little more vibrantly, you know? And so I was like, oh, so that's why. It feels awesome for me, and it just feels sort of awesome if you're normal. But it was actually my depression that, had me hit bottom I I attempted suicide a few times so I joke I was getting good at it and it is true like my first couple attempts were fairly were in a like metaphorical way as well as somewhat literally hesitation marks but that by the time I really by that last time it was my third attempt I really wanted it I really wanted to die really wanted to die I wanted the pain to end Actually, that's actually a, take back all the wanted to die, replace it with wanted the pain to end. And I thought dying was the only way to do that.
0: What's it like when you wake up in the hospital and you're still on earth?
1: I was kind of like, well, fuck, I've tried everything. Because suicide, I always thought suicide is my option Z. Like, I thought, and also, by the way, I thought I tried everything. I tried everything except actually getting sober. You know, I tried self-help. I tried changing my career. I tried different relationships. I tried cutting some people out of my life. I tried cutting other people out of my life, drinking differently, different self-help books. I tried like a ton of different self-help books, therapy, psychotropic medications, and none of that seemed to work. And so for me, it was like, well, if all else fails, I can always commit suicide. And at, by the time I tried to commit suicide that last time, I felt like all my other options had failed. So when I woke up in the ICU, I was like, what's left? Again, at the moment, I was kind of genuinely stumped. What else can I possibly do? My dad was living in Canada at the time. And when I woke up, he was there. And I one time asked me asked him about it. And how did you possibly get from Winnipeg to Austin, you know, so quickly? And he said, well, they called me and told me you were going to die. I don't remember how I did it.
0: Were you in a state where you were able to process the pain that you would have caused him?
1: No, that took a while. And my friends too. Because one of the thoughts I had um, was... I guess I I guess something I guess I'm supposed to live for a while. I didn't really have a thought like a specific God who felt that way, but it was more like, I guess the universe is telling me I'm not supposed to die yet. And <laughs> I was actually in a meeting the other day where someone said that the thing that I've described as like the shortest second step prayer ever is the one I had in that moment and I've always described it as fuck it, you drive, which is how I felt like for the young people listening, it used, one used to get lost driving. There used to be not such a thing as GPS, but I think the experience people can be familiar with, which is that when you're driving, when you're walking around with someone and you're lost and you're arguing about where to go and then at some point you just are like, fine, we'll do it your way. And that's how I felt in that laying in the hospital bed was, I didn't know who I was saying that to exactly, but it was just like, fine, I'll do it your way for a while. I feel very lucky, not just that I survived, but that I had such a close call because when I went to rehab, there was no doubt in my mind that if I kept drinking and using you know, benzos, I would die. I would, I would die. And so I was like, no, I am glad to be here. I need this. And I wound up staying for four months.
0: And was there a time where, or was it a gradual transition from what you're just describing now is um, profound realization of negative? Mm -hmm. Was there a point where more sunlight came in?
1: Oh that took a while. I'm sorry to tell this to people. There is a phenomenon called the pink cloud that happens for some people after they get sober, which is like you the endorphins kick in or something. For me, you know, almost as soon as I got to rehab, like my then husband and I realized like this is this is over. And so I had to go through a divorce while I was in rehab, which was not great. I didn't know what I was going to do with my career. I thought maybe I would just get a job at a coffee shop or a bookstore and just try to not fuck up for a while. And I mean, I didn't have, it's funny because I didn't have this, oh my God, I want to live. But I did have those more quotidian glimpses of peace. You know, I didn't hate myself anymore, which was such a fucking gift. When I w- moved into my own apartment after the sober house, I just created accountability for myself. I went to like three or four meetings a week. I got a sponsor. I just, I did service work in AA. I started to sponsor other women. I made the coffee, put away the chairs, took meetings to other places. And those are forms of accountability. And and that gets us to the, to the idea of sponsorship. I think in 12-step program, sponsorship is the time at which... Those programs, it's been in my experience having been in multiple programs. Um, sponsorship is when the program really, really opens up for you because of that experience of seeing someone else do what you did. But it's funny. I was actually at a meeting this morning and talking about this specific thing, which is one of the things that being with other women in the program has done for me. Is It's really easy to love them no matter what they've done or who they are or what they say. And it's really easy to see when they're being unnecessarily hard on themselves. And especially when I see another woman being hard on herself, and I can see so clearly that I don't want her to do that, that she is beautiful child of God and she deserves all the love and support and sobriety and whatever it is like she deserves all of that because of just who she is because she is a human being she deserves all of that it is so easy to see and so easy for me to jump in and be like whoa 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 if other people all deserve forgiveness and love and grace then i guess i do too <laughs> you know it becomes a math problem my dad would be proud
0: Thousands of years ago, the Greek mathematician Euclid, founder of geometry and the world's first numbers cruncher, observed, things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So doesn't it naturally follow that if other people deserve forgiveness, love, and grace, then I do too. After the break, we'll hear more from Anna Marie Cox about how she took the second step in the 12-step program and accepted a higher power and how she evolved from the broadest definition of a higher power to a place where she identifies as a Christian. More of her personal story of resurrection after this short break where we pay ye gods of commerce.
1: To go to the, the second step, which is the higher power step, one of the best ways to explain it, and I use this for... Anytime I have a conversation with someone about it, it's like, well, are you the highest power in the universe? Are you the most powerful being in the universe? Most people will admit that they are not. And then it's like, you concede the idea that there is something else, gravity, maybe, right? The speed of light, whatever. Well, then you're good. You're good to go.
0: How over the years then did you make that the transition from the broadest possible definition of higher power as something that would work for you to save your life to getting to a place where you're comfortable identifying as a Christian?
1: Well, about my second or third year sober, I realized that I was craving a frame for my higher power wanted to be able to think more deeply about my higher power and be able to look to tradition when it comes to my higher power that I wanted to have in a community like of people who all I could be in dialogue with and who felt the same way and the same flavor as me not just like you know in AA like your fellowship with people who have a higher power but everyone's got a different one and I just thought I would like to have some structure, like the way that I sometimes put it, is that if the higher power is like the sunshine of the spirit, then I wanted to, I wanted like a stained glass window. No. I love the sunshine, and I want that too. But I wanted something to look at, and I did for a split second have this idea: like I could do anything, like I could convert to Islam, like I could become, I could be Jewish, I could do Buddhism, I could, like I, it's a buffet. But Christianity is the dominant religion in America. It's the one that I have the most experience with. I know I already, for reasons that we've already been over, I knew a lot about it. And I guess I'm just going to continue to, you know, give C.S. Lewis a ton of credit. There were things I really liked about it. I really have always loved, to me, the central part of, of Christianity is the grace that we are granted this idea that someone sacrificed so much for me to be loved to prove that i am loved and that that love is everlasting unconditional and it is a gift to everyone like one of the things i love about cs lewis's version of christianity is that like in the last voyage there's a scene where he is horribly racist i should also acknowledge. There's a scene when one of the very clear sort of stereotypical Islamic soldiers who's come to fight with the good guys at the end. Aslan opens up the gates to heaven, lets everybody in. And the Islamic guys, well, I guess, sorry, I guess I'm not me. Not, you know, you guys have fun. I'll just be here. And Aslan says, No, like you have lived your life by the by my teachings, even though you didn't know it. So you are as welcome as, as anyone. And I was like, oh, well, that actually solves a lot of problems for me. <laughs> because I did get hung up on the whole, like, what about the millions and billions of people in the world that have never heard of Jesus? Are you really telling me that they just go to hell? And you know, an evangelical Christian will tell you yes, right? And all Jewish people go to hell? Like, that, that really bothered me. I actually don't know if I believe in hell now. But this attitude of grace that's available to everyone always appealed to me. I did have a real stumbling block with the whole uh, resurrection piece of it. That seemed like a lot. And I don't know if I can really call myself a Christian if I don't like believe the Jesus story. I believe in the idea of grace, but do I believe the Jesus story? And there is a historical Jesus. I know that. I was talking to a, a friend that I made in the program who actually had a Harvard divinity degree, but had done enough in her drinking career that she was working at a Starbucks in St. Paul. She's now a hospital chaplain. She's great. She has twin girls, but she was newly sober, having lost everything when I talked to her. And I told her I was like, a resurrection kind of a deal breaker for me. And she said something, which I've talked to her since, and she said she doesn't even remember saying this, but she said, you know, Anna, the important part of the the resurrection story isn't that he lived again, it's that he died for us. It is actually the thing you think it is. The resurrection is a glorious thing, and it's a celebration, but it's the gift is not the resurrection. The gift to humanity is the willing sacrifice. And for some reason, like that just, that was half of the click. And then the other half of the click was, but I still have trouble with all these miracles. It's not just that I didn't believe in the resurrection. It's just, do I believe God is active in my world? That Do I believe in a personal relationship with a, a God that recognizes me, who I am, and that can work in my world? I was talking to a friend who's actually, who's I think probably still identify as an evangelical Christian, but he's left a lot of the hardcore stuff behind. And he asked me about the time that I almost died, which I do consider to be a miracle. Like I should have died and I didn't. And he said, and he knew the problem I was having was kind of around the resurrection. And he was like, he said this, and again, he says, he doesn't remember saying it. he says, why would you limit the size of the miracle you're willing to accept? And he also reminded me, it's not like you have to go around and just, and you, you can just, if you're willing to believe that God can be active in the world, if you're willing to believe it, it's, there's, a, there's a space there for me. It's the willingness to believe it rather than sometimes I don't know if I actually believe, 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 believe. I have a personal relationship with a God because that seems really so unlikely. There's so many people in the world. How can God have a personal relationship with each one of them? The universe is so big. How can God work in our world? But then I have that thought again, like, why would I limit the size of the miracle I'm willing to accept? Am I willing to accept the idea of a personal relationship? Whether or not I have proof that it exists, whether or not it's quote-unquote true. And I decided that I was. And it's funny because I do now believe that Jesus died for my sins. That thing that those evangelical youth leaders wanted me to say, I am perfectly happy to say these days.
0: So that's come full circle.
1: It has. I wonder, they're probably not listening to the podcast. So their (laughs)
0: recruitment is a success.
1: If they're notching their belt over this,
0: sure.
2: One of the things that
1: I don't like evangelism, I like 12-step programs. One of the principles of the 12-step program is um, it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And I feel like if Christianity could do that, it would be better off. A lot of other, like uh, Judaism is sort of the same way. Like they don't try to convert people, right? Like you have to come. And I think Christianity would be much stronger (laughs) if they could just do that. I realize that there's the, the way that people read the Bible, great commandment to go out and preach, but preaching doesn't mean recruiting. Sharing the good news doesn't mean trying to make people convert.
0: I don't. Think. Or there's the Saint Francis admonition of if you have to use words, preach yeah. the gospel. If you have to use words, meaning that the example is the strongest thing you can do that makes it about attraction.
1: And that's what 12 step programs rely on.
0: Yeah. When I hear you describe your youth as being a time of difficulty in accepting your and loving yourself, my first impulse is to say, How can that be? You are self evidently lovable. You are intelligent and beautiful and talented and hardworking. However, I also know for myself, there are the dark nights of the soul when any other reinforcements I have gotten or joys that I've experienced seem like they were in completely another lifetime, mm-hmm. and I will never return to them. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and so sometimes it's just giving the sun. Another cycle around the globe and realizing that time may be generous to you as it has often been.
1: I'll take you a little step further, which is one of the first things I heard in recovery that I love it. I tell it to to myself all the time. You can always start your day all over again. Like you don't need to wait for the sun. Like, you can hit the reset button whenever you want. It's one of the reasons why I like having cereal in the house. I joke, because you can just have breakfast anytime and that can be like, all right, new day.
0: (laughs) Remarkable is how I would describe the courage shown in Anna's narrative. She's born to a secular family. Her dad's an atheist math professor. Her mom's new age hippie spiritual. But Anna wants to go to Easter Mass and later joins a high school church group until she's pushed to pledge beliefs she doubts. Time after time, the door is kept ajar. That pattern of provisionality may soon become a hallmark of this show. The willingness to consider new things and challenge old beliefs that do not work may be a trait shared by guests of this show But not just the show's guests, also the host. For Christians, their core belief that Jesus Christ on Friday crucified was on Sunday risen from the dead. We heard how Anna, step by step, climbed from the abyss to the place where she could affirm the pledge she'd balked at in her teens, that Jesus Christ indeed died for her sins. Now, I am not, today, where Anna is. But yet, I am where, at one time, she was. Where I'll be tomorrow, God only knows. It's why we try to keep the door ajar. So I want to know what you think. Email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. And your words may be my guide as to whether or not I should kick that door open or slam it shut. That's yeegodspodcast at gmail.com. There's a new day.
2: see